Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. And this week's guest is an interview that Mike and I have been looking forward to, for sure, as we got the chance to meet this gentleman and hear him read his work at the Rassemblement back in April at the University of Maine at Orono. Stephen Riel is the author of a full-length collection of poetry called Fellow Odd Fellow, as well as three chapbooks, the most recent being Postcard from P-Town which was the runner-up for the inaugural Robin Becker Chapbook Prize. His poems have appeared in several anthologies and numerous periodicals. He holds degrees from Georgetown University, Simmons College, and has an MFA in poetry from New England College, which is why I'm currently wearing my New England College hoodie and hat combination, even though we can't see it, I don't think you can see it right now. Spoiler, I used fun, fun fact, I used to coach women's rugby up in the college. Go Grims. Anyway, Stephen is currently the editor-in-chief of the Franco-American Literary E-Journal Resonance, which is something we're definitely going to talk about. So, Stephen, thank you very much for joining the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you for uh, inviting me. This is fun. Okay, before we get going into the real interview, for those who may not know, I mentioned that you published three chapbooks, including an award-winning chapbook. What exactly is a chapbook? Chapbook is a shorter book, usually 32 pages or fewer. So there's different kinds of uh, contests for the full-length books and the chapbooks. Gotcha. Stephen, where are you from? I grew up in a smallish town in central western Massachusetts, uh, Munson, which is near Sturbridge and between Worcester and Springfield. And what was the role of the Franco-American cultural identity kind of in your life growing up? I think, you know, I knew we were French. I studied French uh, starting in eighth grade when it was offered to us um, and took it every year. My parents came from Worcester. Okay. And they came from um, the part of Worcester that's sort of uh, Maine South. It was one of the big Franco-American um, neighborhoods near Clark and they lived on two different sides of the hill but they ended up going to St. Peter's High School and my my father's family uh, came from the closer to a French church that was called Holy Name of Jesus. They moved to Munson uh, after they got married because my father got a job in Springfield so Munson was on the way. So Munson had one church. It didn't have an ethnic, you know, there were, there were no choices there. Sure. And there were Irish priests. There were many Franco-Americans, but a lot of us mispronounced our last names. <laughs> then I, I, when I started working at Harvard University in the library in 1983, when I moved back to Massachusetts, um, I decided to try to keep my French up, so I took a French class at night at the Extension School, and our professor um, was from France. Her name was um, Brigitte Lane, and she told us that she had come to the United States, to New England, to write her dissertation about Franco-Americans in Lowell. Interesting. And that really made an impression on me because I thought she's coming all the way from France to study me. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I don't awesome. even 
you know, and I don't even know anything about my heritage. So that really absolutely yeah. hit me hard. Um, and then she, because of her, I went to a colloquium that they used to have, an annual colloquium that they used to have at Assumption College. Um, so I heard a lot of um, academic presentations about Franco-American history and literature and culture. And then I started going to the Rassemblement and meeting the Franco-American writers. That's awesome. Now, obviously, it seems like the you know, the French language wasn't something you grew up with. Was it something your parents grew up with? I mean, in Worcester, did they speak French in the house? Like, did your grandparents speak the language? Uh, my grandmother definitely did. Uh, my mother said she only spoke French to her, her mother until she was about five and went to school. Gotcha. Um, my father, uh, you know, during the Depression, my father's uh, father died just before he was born or just after like a week before or after he was born wow so because my grandmother who was running a a large canary farm and had three children already she couldn't take care of it all as a single mother so my father went to live with her sister and and her uncle um my father's uncle and aunt in buffalo so he oh, kind wow. of, he kind of for the first five years of his life or so he he was extracted from the French ghetto, if you want to call it sure. that. No, yeah, absolutely. The, neighbor, the neighborhood, one of the French neighborhoods in Worcester. So he had less uh, roots, I think, in the language than my mother did. That's kind of fascinating. I, I like Because the story that you're telling is actually something that we are starting to hear more and more now of uh, people maybe not necessarily being surrounded by the cultural identity growing up. But then later on as adults, something happens, some kind of event, and they go back and try to find it. And I think that's really interesting, really neat. Now, when did you decide that you were going to write poetry? How did that come about? Well, I started in high school because we, we were assigned uh, to write a poem. poem. Sure. <laughs> um, and at first, I thought I would write fiction. But then I think when I was in college and took a poetry workshop, I started to realize that my imagination didn't suit itself to fiction, but it did towards poetry. Um, so I kind of uh, ended up specializing in poetry, mostly because it, it fit it fit me. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And do you, do you continue to write? Continue to publish? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I am working on my next book now, and one publisher is interested in it. So awesome. I'm I'm. I'm tidying it up right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now, what role, maybe if any, cause, well, I know there is some because I've seen some of your work. Is it, do you make a conscious effort or is it there a conscious influence of the Franco-American identity in your work? Because clearly it influences some of it anyway. Well, I think there's different levels of that. I don't set out to write poems sort of uh, with a, uh, oh, I have to write a poem about X and have a kind sure. of dry topic. I think that things, I write about things that move me or mean something to me. One of the um, major Franco-American pieces that I've been working on for the last 15 years came about because I went to Holyoke, Massachusetts one Sunday to see uh, Precious Blood Church, which was a traditional Franco-American parish. The church was half knocked down. Wow. The crane was in the middle of the in, in the middle of the sanctuary, oh, and wow. it's going to be 
finally knocked down the second half of it on Monday, the next day. So that was such an emotional um, experience sure. for me, you know, both as a Franco-American, but also as someone who had left the church. Yeah. yeah. So I have worked on that sequence of poems for 15 years. It's not, some parts of it have been published. But so that came out of a very emotional experience um, and translated into more than that. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's, there's, I, I can't even begin to think of the directions you go after seeing that image. As you mentioned, it ties into culture, ties into faith, the whole half destruction, but still more destruction waiting to be done. I mean, that's super interesting. I can't wait to see this. That's going to be very cool. But I do want to get to one particular piece that we had asked you to read, if that's cool. That is the field trip home. Is that right if you read that for us, Stephen? Sure. This poem has some French in it. Um, so I'll just translate that for those of us who don't know. It has curé, which is the priest, feast, which is the son, feel, the daughter, petit fils, nevers, grandson, nephew, au lieu de français, which means instead of French, je désire de vous entendre, comprenez-vous? I want to hear you, do you understand? L'authenticité, which means authenticity, and le grand chemin à notre identité, the paved road, the highway to our identity. And this poem um, starts with an epigraph, um, which is by the poet Adrian Rich. This is the oppressor's language, yet I needed to talk to you. Field trip home. There are only back roads to my past, Going back, I think I know the way from Bondsville to Thorndike, Sturbridge to Southbridge. I disregard the map, bank the van into curves like a bobsled, and forget everything but half-remembered dips in the road. Then I skid across the bridge. There is always a bridge, and I'm on Main. The duplexes and three-deckers perched on the sides of fierce little hills, still want paint and repair. Crooked, rotting balusters fall out like teeth. Bicycles sprawl where grass never stood a chance. Rain gutters sag. Still, that peculiar defiance houses here imply. Pale green clabbered, raised on the edge of a riverbed, choked with granite. Smokestacks and steeples jut up against the hills. Hushed, we mount the stairs in this industrial light. Worn sandstone steps muffle our school's shoes as we spiral up the brick turret. Our thoughts and voices are taken away to be sorted and dyed by click, whir, and clack. We become all eyes in this din. We watch rats, rags soak in vats, then see scummy pulp dried and pressed into egg cartons by men with corrugated brows, women with skin gray as the canal below, but their eyes and hands dance in the quadrille. The machines call but can't catch 
their wrists spin patterns in and out of stainless steel as they weave in and out of the deal at lunch hour whist. Sometimes they lose bets. Sometimes they lose fingers. Docile, they make good hands, never strike, vote Republican, mind their cure, supply the shift with another fils Raymond, another fil René. Docile students, we've been herded here, another field trip to study what we'll never know. Yet I know more than I understand about this place, the curves in this road and staircase. I'm not a Feeney nor a Smith. These are my people we're gawking at. I'm their petit fils, neveu. Their lips taught me English, click, whir, and clack, au lieu de français, a tune I often still can't catch. I wanted to blurt out, je désire de vous entendre, comprenez-vous? But slunk home to check my grammar in books I once memorized under the tutelage of teachers who said, Gothier, like us, instead of Gautier, who studiously failed to point out l'authenticité of half the class's last names the paved road, le grand chemin à notre identité. Thank you. Thank you very much. I do want to it's <laughs> cool, ask a couple of questions about this um, because seemingly, especially at the end of it, it's touching upon uh, a lot of what me and Mike are kind of trying to do with this entire project, which is tackle the issue of cultural identity and what is cultural identity and what we're doing here. And I'm curious as to why you decided uh, to throw in the French, especially at the ending there? I, you know, it, to a little degree, it's a risk for me because I feel like my French is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's a little bit of a risk. But why did I? I think partly maybe as the poem, I, this is really honestly, I'm just thinking of this now. Maybe as the poem progresses, uh, the student as outsider who's coming on the field trip to observe gradually identifies with the people who are being observed and realizes that, that he's one of them. And as that shift happens, the French comes forward in the language. And I don't think that that was conscious, but that's I think that's awesome. what's, what's happening. No, that's super exciting and super, I mean, the fact that you're re looking back on it now and getting, and getting a new vision of it as you read it now is super, super neat. I did want to, you touched on a couple of things that I thought was kind of fascinating. And one of them was the whole line. I wrote it down like docile. They make good hands. They never strike is something that has actually come up before as we've recorded this podcast. The whole idea of the docile, not striking French person. Is that a story that you had been told when you went back and started researching some of your history? Well, I, th I think I read that and I also I think that a big part of me dealing with my culture was trying to understand what was partly what I learned from my family, what I learned from the church, uh, what is what is Franco-American and about the kind of um, not putting oneself forward, doing a good job, being quiet, taking the uh, back seat. And I, I also think there's a lot of historical 
aspects to the, of this that I don't really understand in that in, I think in some cities, the French were in um, competition with the Irish for the fact. Sure factory job so if the irish were democrats then the french were going to be republicans and then i went to the museum of uh, work and culture in woonsocket last year and they had a lot of they had a whole room about labor history in woonsocket which of course is franco-american labor history and they were very active and there was a there were strikes there so i think it may have in fact differed city by city no, I think it's it's interesting because I, I've heard stuff like that before, that idea, the docile Frenchman who just goes to work and doesn't create problem. And I've often wondered, depending on who the speaker is, whether or not that's intended to be a compliment or a slight. I think sometimes it's probably a little bit of each. Yeah, I think so, too. I think we were proud of our um, of who we were, but but who we were didn't always uh get us ahead in life. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, for sure. All right, I do want to touch upon a couple other of your works, if I could, at least a couple of lines anyway, because um, you have the a poem, The, the Vain Addicts, yeah. which was really cool. And there's one line that, I mean, jumped out at me right away, uh, which was, but after we've moved on, who will remember what we forgot? And I think that was a lot of almost what we had talked about the, the Rassemblement this past year. The whole idea of uh, cultural identity, um, some maybe being lost, is it forgotten? What's the result of that? And I think a lot of that in poems kind of touching upon that, which I think is super interesting. Is that, I mean, is that a topic that you kind of want to tackle in your work? Well, I think that honestly, I think I wrote that that poem a long time ago, and it was it was uh, it's definitely about memory and and the possibility of memory. And also the it's almost um, the impossibility of memory. Sure, of <laughs> um, course. Be, being successful, I think that I think my understanding of Franco-American experience has widened a lot since then, and I think I'm less interested in preserving some mythic past. And for gotcha. for me, it would be like a Quebecois mythic past. Sure. And and I think I'm much more interested in understanding where we are now as a people and also what are what are our connections with the peoples around us through through history and in the present and and with the land that our our forebears conquered here so i guess in a way i'm more interested in weaving together the present than than necessarily spending so much time uh, navel gazing um, towards the past. I think that that's been a change for me probably in the last 10 years. That's cool. Because it's funny because in the same poem, you have the line, I am my own archivist trying to reassemble more than I can remember, which, which again, I think ties all back into what you were just talking about, which is cool. Um, I do, do you want to talk about the De Long poem real quick? Because yeah. that touched on something that um, was made pretty clear to me. Uh, very early on when I was growing up and that the poem starts off with your with a meme you know saying the rosary in French and the whole idea that the language and the faith were super intertwined I remember one speaker uh, told me that it wasn't until they were an adult that they realized God could speak English because <laughs> it was just it was just assumed that the language and the faith uh, 
had to be the same, had to be go together. And I'm wondering if that's something you have come across before. That wasn't my experience because I grew up in such an assimilated uh, town. Uh, the Franco-Americans were very assimilated and we, and there, we weren't going to a French church. So uh, for me, Catholicism is very English. But that poem is, I tried to write about what, what is it like to have this consciousness that's somewhere between two languages. And, and I found it was very hard to find words to describe that. So it was really challenging to try to describe the experience of feeling like I had some, some kind of spiritual, because a lot of it is these kind of unconscious feelings uh, about a relationship with a language. And it's also, it sort of felt like it was subterranean um, it was hard to express, try to express that. And I, and I think it's pretty interesting because some of the things you touch upon, uh, not just the language, but almost like a, the dialect of the Quebec language specifically, which I thought was really cool. Again, another topic that we hear time and time again here. We can do this all day with all kinds of different poems, but I need to make sure we allow time to plug Resonance because that's an awesome, awesome project. So first of all, what is this project? Well, a few years ago, those of us who go to the Rassemblement were saying we need to have a, a place that encourages Franco-American writers to produce and where we can um, be um, inspired by one another and foster a new generation of writers. Um, and we, we, we started and stopped and then about two years later, we started up again. And I think that it was really Grégoire Chabot, who, the playwright, who was the spark behind this. He kept pushing and going back to the idea. And about two years ago, a group of us said, okay, we're going to do this. And we started um, having meetings and uh, eventually having phone meetings, and that worked easier. The uh, University of Maine at Orono and Susan Panette were very helpful and getting us a platform, a digital platform for our journal in their digital commons. And we just published our first issue uh, this past winter. It has, we were looking for poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, graphic fiction, drama, uh, reviews, artwork. Um, and we have a, a, we even have a, uh, Louisiana Creole editor and a Haitian Creole editor. Very cool. And one thing that I thought was super neat was that this is all available for free for anybody who wants it on the internet. Was that always the intention? Yes. And, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little tricky to build, build up a e-journal and let people know about it. And, and, um, it's, it's going to be a lot of work. We have to continue to do outreach to reach writers uh, there's so many Franco-Americans who do write who don't even know they're Franco-American. <laughs> sure, no, absolutely. <laughs> or, don't know about, or don't know about us. <laughs> no, of course. Um, so there's a lot of uh, outreach we need to do going forward. Okay, basic question. English, French, both? Both, anything, yes. It may be very fitting for us if we have, for instance, if we, if our let's say our third issue will have a, a theme called borderlands or um, suppressed languages or something like that. Well, what if um, uh, Hispanics 
have some kind of work about um, borderlands or suppressed language in their experience that sure. sheds, sheds light on ours. Wouldn't we want to include something like that? So I think we're we're we want to open up cross pollination and not not uh, stay inside of uh, some kind of fixed boundaries. No, that's really cool. And I think something else that caught my attention, I thought it was super interesting, was that in the first issue, which you wrote, you made it pretty clear that we're talking about what it means to be Franco-American today. Like what our current experience as Franco-Americans are, which I think is awesome, which is perfect for like a fiction journal where you can actually go, go into kind of how, how we're living. What is the culture like today? What are our experiences instead of always talking about, you know, what the little Canada's were in the 20s? Yeah, and and you know it's not to leave the, any of that out. That 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 can be included as well. But but we are trying to expand the 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 scope and the vision. Yeah, that's cool. Some of the questions you mentioned, which I think is pretty awesome. There's so many possible threads to follow. So many paths to explore. What is our particular relationship to whiteness, with capitalism, with the history of assimilation, with Canada, with France? with the French and English languages, with religious institutions, with other immigrant groups. And I thought that was so neat because each and every one of those could be an entire podcast episode for me and Mike. So that was very, very awesome. Yeah. And what I, afterwards I, I thought, Oh, I'm so stupid. What a man I am. I should have, I should have said something about the experience of Franco American women. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. Episode two. <laughs> now, if somebody wants to check out, this first issue where are we going okay on the on the web they would go to uh the url is digital commons one word dot library dot slash resonance very cool and we will definitely make sure to put that link up on all of our social media and what if somebody wants to be a contributor how, how does that work okay the um the way to sub all the instructions for submissions are on one page. When you when you get there, you'll you'll see the link to that page, and it will tell you everything. And then you would just upload um, your submissions according to the instructions there. It's and if you have any problems, there's ways to get in touch with us to uh, or or questions. There's there's an email address so that you can get in touch with the editorial board. All right, Stephen, if people were to go check out the page right now for this literary journal, what would they find there? Well, one thing that I was really thrilled as a poet was to include some very accomplished uh, work um, by people like Bill Tremblay, who was for many years the editor of the Colorado Review, Denise Duhamel, um, the award-winning poet Ellen LaFleche. So we've got quite a, a group of poets. We also have an excerpt from a longer theater piece by Abby Page, who performed some of this at the Rassemblement. To Which great, was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the creative, there's um, several uh, creative nonfiction pieces. Some of them have to do with uh, the French language, traveling to... France as a student uh, or having students of English travel here from France and the experience of being the teacher of, of French people in, in the United States. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, so Mary Elizabeth Obey and Meredith Escudier have both have pieces related to language. 
there's also some pretty cool book reviews. Um, uh, Professor uh, Leslie Choquette from Assumption has uh, reviews two books, uh, one by David Vermette, his new book, and then David Vermette has a review of another book. So, uh, you know, we've got people being... Oh, that's awesome. And also being reviewers themselves. And finally, we have uh, um, an interview with uh, a young artist who whose work um, we we had as the the cover of our first issue, so it's it's varied and there's some really good uh, writing in English and in French and in both. And then my final question: What if somebody wants to get more Stephen Real poetry? Because we need to be able to sell you some books here. That's why that's why we're we're plugging this. How do how do they get a hold of your work? Okay, well, I have a website. It's uh, com. My books are available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, you know, the, the big places like that as well. First book was called How to Dream. The second book is called uh, The Spirit Can Crest. That has a lot of poems about my, my younger brother's death. Oh, wow. The third book is called Postcard from P-Town. And the last book, the longest, which is sort of like the, the greatest hits, <laughs> is called Fellow Odd Fellow. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fun. We've been looking forward to this for, for quite some time. I appreciate it, sir. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode. This program is recorded at the Conquer TV podcasting studio. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Conquer TV. The producer is solely responsible for its content.